All right, Proverbs chapter 28 this evening. We continue our study through the book of Proverbs together and uh, intend to kind of just finish out the 28th chapter this evening in our time together. Last time we only went down as far as verse 10 where we kind of concluded, so I uh, got a good portion of the rest of the chapter. We'll just take our way out through the remainder of the chapter this evening, beginning in verse 11 as we kind of just continue on with this workshop in God's wisdom. Proverbs 28, verse 11, our first proverb tells us the rich man uh, is wise in his own eyes, but the poor has understanding which searches him out. So uh, this seems to describe how sometimes wealth can unfortunately have a blinding effect uh, in our lives. You remember Jesus himself spoke of the deceitfulness of riches. Uh, and unfortunately, one of the downsides, though we may often think of all the upsides of having more money or having excess money or whatever we might define as being someone who's a rich man or a rich woman, uh, as always, remember, the Bible tells us there's kind of two sides to everything. Again, remember, Jesus also said that it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And so sometimes we think, oh, to be rich, oh, to have more wealth. And a lot of times we forget that uh, that comes with added challenges. It comes with added responsibilities. Some of our Proverbs have talked about that, how uh, the rich have many friends or many people who want to be their friends anyway, uh, we might say, as the proverb describes. And there are challenges as well to wealth. Again, the, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of God because it's hard for them sometimes to see clearly the need in their life, the poverty of their own condition, maybe the desperation uh, of needing God's help and God's work in their lives. And in some ways, that excess wealth or that excess money can almost be like a pseudo-savior uh, because they can use their wealth to more easily get themselves out of a problem or resolve a difficulty. And so wealth can have, as this proverb describes in the first half of it, how the rich can be wise in his own eyes. Kind of, unfortunately, wealthy people at times can have that blinding effect where they only really see things one way, and that's they see things through the lens of their excess wealth alone, and that's how they operate and function. And so therefore, to the wealthy, money can just become the solution to every problem. You have a problem, you don't have to pray. You have a problem. You don't need to humble yourself and ask another person for assistance or guidance. If you have excess wealth, a lot of times you could just write a check, solve the problem, buy something new, pay off a situation. And so it gives an advantage to some degree, you might say, to do things that others can't. But that can be a very blinding influence because wealth can cause someone to a degree, if I could say it this way, to almost sometimes kind of lose touch with reality. Because maybe a situation arises in their life and they may lack utilizing at times good judgment due to the ease in which they can, with their wealthy status, spend money so freely that they oftentimes don't need to think maybe strategically or wisely. In fact, sometimes they can even begin to operate in a way that's very poor stewardship where they're wasting wealth. They purchase something and they don't like it, so they just purchase a different one. Uh, and or they purchase something and they do it very haphazardly and realize, oh, I'm kind of bored with this, and so let me just buy another one. 
And so all of a sudden, their wealth is some, some ways kind of blinding good perception and how to operate, and it really becomes a detriment in their life, where all of a sudden, that excess wealth, they kind of start losing touch with reality in what is a really wise and good way to think through things, make good judgments, or maybe imagine actually having to a situation arises, say, hmm, I don't have excess wealth, so I better think what's the strategic way to resolve this situation. Or maybe I got to get on my knees and pray and ask God to come through or for some door to open and, and some other way to help work through this situation rather than just you know going to, to the bank of excess resources. And so this seems to be kind of the contrasting idea where he says, in contrast to the rich man who just becomes wise in his own eyes and kind of maybe negligent in, in, in the way that he functions sometimes, a little bit blinded by the wealth. But the poor man, he says, verse 11, who has, notice, understanding. Understanding of what? What it's like to struggle maybe day by day. Or understanding of what it's like to have a bill arise and not have the money to pay the bill. Or understanding of what it may be like for something to break down and realize, oh no, got to get this car back on the road how am I going to do that and still pay the electric bill at the same time? Or, you know, however that scenario may unfold. And so sometimes having less and even sometimes having lack in different seasons of our life, which I think it's good to experience the balance of both in life, sometimes the poor individual has much greater understanding because they learn to think more strategically. And, and they pray things through a little bit more diligently, and they got to consider things. They consider other avenues, and they have to ask God for help and guidance because they can't just fix their problem with excess resources at their disposal. So sometimes they're forced to use greater stewardship. And as he describes here, with understanding, they can kind of search out even to a greater degree things than the rich person, and they can end up having much better insights. So again, important to realize there are blessings and curses to different statuses in life, right? So whether it's being single or being married, right? It's, 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 there's different statuses of life. There are advantages to being single. There are advantages to being married. There are challenges to being married, and there are certain challenges to being single, and there are challenges to being wealthy just like there are advantages to being wealthy and there are also challenges to having less or maybe even being poor, but there are also, the Bible would say, some advantages as well to being poor. Uh, there are things that having less at times can bring great benefit in our lives, and one of the things he says is a lot of times it causes a person to develop much greater understanding. They, they're in touch with reality. They think through things strategically, and sometimes that can be a great advantage in the bigger picture. Verse 12, he then says, and when the righteous rejoice, there is great glory, but when the wicked arise, and the picture he seems to rise to power, to a place of influence, men hide themselves. Now, when he says here, when the righteous rejoice, there's great glory, he's contrasting again here with when the wicked arise, Men then in response hide themselves. It seems when the righteous rejoice, the picture is rejoicing over the fact that they've obtained a victory or perhaps they've arrived to a position of status. For example, maybe rejoicing they won the election or rejoicing that they've come to a place of influence or leadership or something of that nature. And he says when it's a righteous person who's arised to a place of prominence maybe or leadership or governance, 
He says, great glory. The idea is everyone can celebrate that. Oh, great. Someone with a place of control and power who's, uh, they got a righteous perspective. They have a righteous value system. They're going to do things the right way to help people in ways that are going to bring benefit and welfare to their lives. So everybody can celebrate when a righteous person is in that type of a role. But he says, but when the wicked arise, someone who's got a wicked heart, who has an evil mindset, who doesn't have proper agendas or motivations, he says that the response of people when someone like that arises to a place of power or influence is people start hiding themselves. The idea is they go into a self-preservation mode and they start doing things out of fear and concern because they realize that individual can really sabotage the ship that we're all sailing on together. And so therefore, we better make sure that we think about our own interests because with that person in charge, things really may get bad. And so here he kind of brings some of these things out. We'll see in some of our verses going forward some more of these contrasts to righteous and healthy people leading and contrasts he'll talk about to wicked rulers. And this kind of seems to be some of that theme we find a few times in this chapter. Proverbs 28, verse 13 in my Bible, I got it circled. I think it's one of those Proverbs that certainly worth meditation and consideration because though they all have great wisdom, this one has got great life wisdom for all of us every day of our lives. And the reason why is because Romans chapter 3 says there is no difference. We all sin and we all continually fall short of the glory of God. And so therefore, this is something we are all always working through, wrestling with, dealing with how do we process and handle when we sin, when we've struggled, maybe when we've failed, maybe if a person's gotten even into a life-dominating habit of sin, or maybe they've really backslidden and aired off course, whatever you know degree that may go to, how do we process that? What do we do with it in the stewardship of our own sins and failures? Proverbs 28, verse 13, great, great insight he says, he who covers his sins, the idea is to hide them, to do what you can to, to shield others from knowing about it, to keep it secret, to cover, make a cover-up, he says, will not prosper. Notice that. He who covers his sins, and why do we cover our sins at times to try and hide when we've been sinning or we've been engaged in some sin or we're currently sinning? Why do we try and cover it up anyway? The whole mindset in covering up is, if I let it be exposed, then it's going gonna, it's gonna to hold me back in my life. So I got to keep it hidden. I got to keep it covered so I can keep progressing and I can keep going forward, whether it's in the pursuit of that sin or whether it's just in general. You know, If it comes public that I've been doing this sin or I've sinned in this way, man, then everything in my life is going to crash and burn. So I want to keep prospering. I want to keep getting ahead and going forward. And the Bible says... That's actually a foolish mindset because God says when you cover your sins, you won't prosper. The exact opposite will happen. God won't allow you to prosper. Why? Because God loves us too much to let us prosper. And so God will purposely do what he can to stifle us from succeeding long-term. God is not going to bless long-term wrongdoing and sin. I mean, he wouldn't be a good father. I mean, what, what good father, a human earthly father, if their child decided to go on some, you know, grievous moral detour and start doing wrong things, 
you know, would say, oh, oh, son, you're doing heroin? Oh, real? can I start financing that for you? I mean, what, fa- what human father would do that? Let me help prosper you in your heroin addiction. I mean, God's not going to finance, endorse, enable, help us, assist us. He's going to do whatever he can to make that any form of enjoyment in that be as short-lived as possible, whatever it takes for us to get our attention, to expose that so that we can end up prospering in the right way, in a healthy way. So he says to cover one's sins will never prosper, but he, notice, here's the other side, the way we should respond, whoever confesses and forsakes, notice two things there, confession and forsaking or abandoning those sins will have mercy. So to hide one's sins that we're guilty of committing, God's not going to let a person succeed in doing that. It's a violation of error, uh, and, and God doesn't want to, to s- us to sink our own ship, so it's dumb to try and cover it up and hide it. It never works out. In contrast, he says the right thing to do, whether we've sinned or we have progressively sinned or we've got a whole pattern of sin, even if we've been covering it up, he says, is to do two things, is to acknowledge it openly and to abandon it sincerely, to acknowledge it openly, to confess. Whoever confesses, and the word confess literally is a term that means just to say the same thing in agreement. So to confess, genuine confession is to say, God, your word says this is wrong, it's sin, no excuses, no justification, no story of, well, why I did it, or because this and this, that's why I, that's not confession. That's justification. That's blame shifting. That's Garden of Eden stuff. That's Garden of Eden stuff. That was what Adam did, the very first sin committed on the planet, and the very first sinner, that was the way of responding to it. Adam, where are you? What's happened? Well, God, the woman that you gave me gave me this piece of fruit. She, she tempted me. She persuaded me. And basically, he blame shifts in two ways. It was the woman's fault. She made me do this wrong thing. It was because of her, I did the wrong thing. And worse, he blame shifted horizontally and he also blame shifted vertically. The woman that you gave me. God, everything was good in the garden until you brought the woman around. Would you let me marry her for? This would have never happened to me. And, and Adam, dual blame shifts. That, that's that's a, a bad human mistake And God says the right way to handle our sins when we blow it is sooner rather than later when the conviction of God comes upon our heart that we know we've is just to acknowledge it, to own it, to confess it. No excuses, just, Lord, this is wrong. I know it's wrong. We admit it. We confess it to the Lord. And, and, And at the same time, I believe confessing to others. The Bible tells us in 1 John chapter 1, If we confess our trespasses, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the idea there of confessing our sins, we will have mercy. See, because of what God did in Jesus, there is always a just and faithful basis for God to always forgive us when we confess and acknowledge our sins, because what Jesus did is completely sufficient. So God can always, with a just basis, forgive us and cleanse us, even purge the guilt out of our life and remove it from us, and give us mercy instead of the, the judgment that we deserve. We, we bring God's mercy into our life much more quickly 
rather than having God resisting us and opposing us and not letting us prosper spiritually, mentally, emotionally, physically, circumstantially, instead of God hindering us progressing and prospering, God can be merciful to us much more quickly and begin to let his mercy and grace flood into our lives as we humbly confess. But look, that confession at times should also be, in a right way, confession before one or two or a few safe others as well, or especially someone maybe we've sinned against. And that's why James says on the other side of that, that we are to confess our trespasses, the Bible says in James, one to another, and pray for one another that we may be healed. That is, that healing might come and liberation. So we confess to the Lord for forgiveness of our sins because only Jesus can forgive us. He's the Savior. We confess to him vertically for forgiveness of our sins, but it's not just the forgiveness of our sins. What do we also want? We also want freedom from our sins. And the place that freedom comes from our sins, I believe, is God's design of confessing our trespasses one to another and going to a safe individual or a safe person or two that's spiritually mature and openly admitting and acknowledging to them, or if it's the person we've sinned against directly in some way, acknowledging to them, because that's what helps us once it's been brought into the light and confessed, to then do the second half of it, which is to forsake it. Because now it's out in the open. And now, now I can genuinely forsake it. Because what I find, and I can tell you this, and I think to any degree, any Christian knows it if you failed in this way since you've been walking with the Lord, and I certainly walk this out and see this all the time and you know working together with people in pastoral ministry over the years is people do the first part they tell they tell god they're sorry for what they did but then they just keep hiding what they're doing and, and so they never forsake it and they never forsake it because they just keep telling god they're sorry and they do one part of it and they just stay in the pattern of living in a cover-up of sin chronically because they never bring it into the light and they never forsake it and so they never go on that path of mercy and they stay in the recurring problematic situation of just continuing to keep it covered. So again, both are very, very essential. Confess it and forsake it. So admit it, acknowledge it, and then you gotta be willing to abandon it. That's repentance there, turning away from it. Whatever it takes, radically turning the opposite direction. Stop going north, 180 degrees, start going south. Again, no, no, no making any provisions for it, doing everything you can to cut off the avenues. That's the idea of forsaking something. That's what Jesus meant at times when he got radical, saying things like, if your arm offends, you cut it off. I mean, it's just, it's, it was radical language. He was just trying to say that that would be painful, would it not? <laughs> but that's the idea. Radical, painful decisions sometimes are the important things that we have to do in our lives to turn from something. And he says, but look, the sooner you do that, the sooner you get yourself out of that position where your life won't prosper and it's constantly hindered, and the sooner you do that, God's mercy starts flooding into your lives. And you know, one of the greatest examples of this we all know, of course, is the life of David, right? David's situation where he erred, he sinned with Bathsheba, he entered into sexual immorality, he then finds out shortly afterwards that as he slept with his married woman that now she's pregnant carrying his child. So what does David do? Does he do Proverbs 28, verse 13? He doesn't do that, right? David tries to cover his sins because he wants to keep prospering and keep doing what he's doing and thinking, I can just, I can, I can cover it. I'll cover it up. I'll, I'll. And for 11 months, 
he works the cover-up process. And we all know the story. We studied it together in our studies, you know, through 2 Samuel together, where David goes into the whole cover-up process. He brings Uriah home from the battlefield. He says, hey, why don't you take a week off? Heard you're doing a stellar job out there. I want to reward you as the king. Go home, spend some time with your wife. David's thinking, perfect, this is easy. This guy's going to love me. I gave him a week off from combat. He goes home, he sleeps with his wife, and then when the pregnancy has to be known in public, then you know we'll just say it was Uriah and, and Bathsheba's baby, and, and there you go, it's all covered. Well, because he's such a noble individual, you remember the story, he, he, he says, I, I can't do that. I, I can't go home and be with my wife and selfishly, again, keep in mind, this was his wife. I can't selfishly go home and enjoy the pleasure of having relations with my own wife legitimately while my other comrades are suffering out on the battlefield. I, I just can't do that. And his character was so noble. He, he slept outside the, the, the palace, remember, and he wouldn't go home. Then David tried to get him drunk, <laughs> thinking if he got him drunk, he still didn't do it. So then eventually David realizes, man, this is not working. He keeps working the cover-up. He writes a letter to the commander of Uriah, and he says, look, this is a sealed letter. I want you to bring this back to your commander when you return to the battlefield. And remember, he brings his own death, in a sense, uh, assassination notice back to his commander. Put Uriah in the heat of the battle, and once you put him out front, then pull away so that basically he'll just get overcome in the heat of the battle and he'll die. And David basically creates a, you know, a, a scheme for him to get assassinated. So now he's guilty of adultery, immorality, now murder. And for 11 months, he had that whole cover-up going, right? Until eventually God, like he always does, our sin finds us out. It was just a matter of time. But after 11 months, it, you know, God brought it to the light anyway. And again, I would encourage you, read Psalm 32, because there David describes how during that season when he was not acknowledging his sin and he wasn't forsaking it, he says, that the hand of the Lord was heavy upon my life. David says, my vitality was sapped. And David just describes feeling miserable, miserable. It wasn't just that he wasn't prospering circumstantially. Mentally, emotionally, spiritually, his life was a mess. He felt horrible. So again, these are very, very important lessons because the bottom line is if there's one thing every one of us in this room and all of us as believers understand, it is that from time to time, we sin, we fail. And God gives us great wisdom here. He says, look, don't be foolish when you sin. Be wise when you sin, address it, acknowledge it, abandon it, get God's mercy as soon as possible, God says, just get my mercy coming into your situation sooner rather than later. That's the wise thing. So great proverb, know it, memorize it. By the grace of God, may he help us to live it out and share it with others as well as maybe they're in situations where they need that advice and guidance. Verse 14, happy is the man who is always reverent. The idea is revering God, you know, walking in the fear of God, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. So here he describes a key to what we might call personal happiness. Personal happiness comes to the individual, he says, who is always a reverent individual. That is reverent towards God, that they have a reverent attitude towards God, towards the things of God. They're a respectful individual towards those things that are divine, towards morals that God lays out. And he says, someone who lives in that way 
they're going to, with their regard for righteousness, they're going to experience a very happy, pleasant experience. They're going to enjoy life to a degree. You know, a lot of times people think, you know, if they live more immorally, that they're more happy, and they look at you and I as God's people, and they think, oh, man, I mean, just you God-fearing, Bible-believing people who try and live according to the standards of God's Word, what a miserable existence. Oh, what a bummer of a way to live. I mean, you can't do this and you can't do that. And the reality is, no, I choose not to do that. I don't have to do that anymore. And quite honestly, I don't have all the regret and misery in my life that I once did when I lived like you. So I'm not sad and miserable. The Bible says, oh, how happy is he whose transgressions are forgiven. And there's a joy and a happiness that's experienced in the life of a person who lives in reverence towards God. It's the happiest existence. It's the most pleasant experience where in contrast, he says, verse 14, the one who hardens his heart ends up falling into, and look at that strong word there, calamity. Again, the hard-hearted person, the one who resists God, right? The Bible tells us, woe to him who strives against his maker. And when we have a hard heart towards God and his spirit, towards his word, and we're rebellious, those always resisting what's right, they end up bringing, the Bible says, self-ruin upon themselves. God uses that strong term there that those who have a hardened heart towards God and just a hard individual towards what's really good and matters, he says, those people will end up falling into calamity. Strong word, calamity. If there's one thing I don't want in my life, it's it's self-inflicted calamity. Again, we read this and think of the example, of course, of Pharaoh in the Old Testament, right? That's exactly what Pharaoh did. God was trying to get Pharaoh's attention, trying to get Pharaoh's attention, and every time God tried to get Pharaoh's attention, and get, it, it would say Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Pharaoh hardened his heart. Every time God kept trying, and then eventually it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the language is literally Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardened his heart, and then eventually it says God stiffened Pharaoh's heart. And of course, when God stiffened him in that hard-hearted condition, then he just became so hard and calloused, he brought calamity not only on his own life, but upon his whole nation. I mean, the calamity that Pharaoh brought by having a hard heart towards God. So again, just a very you know, good thing to keep in mind. Nothing good ever happens in any human being hardening their heart toward God, toward other people. A hardened heart is just really a pathway towards self-inflicted calamity where that may affect you, your family, and really many others connected to you as well. Verse 15, he goes back to this idea of a, of a poor and unhealthy leader or ruler again, like a roaring lion, that's not something good to meet, right? Or a charging bear. I don't know which one I would pick. You want to run into a roaring lion, the king of the forest, ferocious, or a charging, angry bear. He says, that is just like a wicked ruler over poor people. So again, the picture there, a roaring lion or a charging bear, uh, are two animals, right, that we picture. They're ferocious. They're cruel. They're going to intimidate, devour, harm. And he says, uh, that's exactly like what a wicked ruler is like. 
a wicked ruler over people who are vulnerable under their wicked rulership is basically like a roaring lion and a ferocious bear. The idea is that wicked ruler, that unhealthy leader, they abuse their power with people. They become ferocious and they manipulate people in cruel ways and they devour everything that's good in people's lives for their own appetites. And for their own appetites and their own self-interest, they will just ravage and destroy the lives of other people like a roaring lion and like a charging bear. Verse 16, a ruler who lacks understanding, here's another way of picturing it, is a great oppressor. Again, the idea is they got a control issue. They're abusing their authority. They oppress people. They manipulate people. They know how to work people and take advantage of people. They use people as disposable resources. And so they oppress and they control and they know how to work angles and they're always thinking three steps ahead. Well, this, that, and okay, then I'll just, I'm going to have this ready so that, and, and this is what they become like. They become oppressors, those who lack understanding because they don't realize that their authority has been given to them to help people. True authority, the Bible says that true authority, even from the Lord, particularly whether in civil rulership or business leadership and certainly in spiritual leadership, that authority is not for destruction. It's for edification. It's to be empowered to build people up, to be in a place of good influence. That's a proper understanding of any form of leadership or rulership. He says, so that unhealthy ruler, they abuse their power. The wicked leader bulldozes people, abuses them for their own self-interest and gain. But the contrast, he who hates covetousness, and I was trying to draw a contrast now, the person who's not greedy for gain, the person who's not leading for their own self-interest, but they truly want to help people. They want to provide oversight and guidance and you know, lovingly shepherd and guide people. They're a, a servant leader, as we might call. You know, isn't it interesting that you know, so much earlier on, we understood the concept even of civil governance. We called people that they were public servants. <laughs> that was always supposed to be the idea of elected officials. They were public servants. They were representatives of the people in their district or their state or who you know, put them into a place of authority to be a public civil servant on behalf of the people as their representative. Not to just do what they wanted and to force their agendas and, and work the system and oppress and manipulate for their own selfish agenda to stay in power. And he says the pure-hearted leader doesn't have a covetous attitude. Instead, they see their rulership as something to help people, to invest in people. So good and healthy leaders, they'll be effective in their leadership because of that much longer. And this is the idea there where he says he who hates covetousness, that is the good, healthy leader, will prolong his days. The idea there is prolong their tenure as a leadership. Why? Because if somebody's oppressor, what are people going to do under that kind of leadership? Revolt, right? Vote them out of office, do whatever you can. If that person's a horrible leader, most reasonable thinking people don't want to stay subject to a horrible, abusive leader. But he says when someone's a good and healthy leader, they prolong their days of leadership. Their tenure is expanded because people want healthy leadership. And they appreciate in the same way, the opposite. Hey, if someone's leading well and bringing benefit into their life, they're very loyal to that. And so it prolongs the tenure of one's leadership because they're a good, solid 
leader in the way they function. Verse 17, a man burdened with bloodshed, the idea is guilty of harming or, or even perhaps killing someone guilty of bloodshed, will flee into a pit, let no one help him. So here the picture is when someone perhaps who has wounded another or killed a person being plagued by their own guilt, and so they run into a pit maybe, or perhaps they're run into a pit because of kind of proper judgment, and they've entered into that pit for suffering their wrong, the Bible says wisdom understands, let no one help him. The idea is it's best in such situations to allow justice to have its way with such a person. That if someone has done something grievous enough to you know, severely wound someone or literally take the life of another person and they find themselves in the pit of judgment reaping the consequence, the just punishment for what they've done wrong, he says nobody should step in to help them. The idea is them being in that pit is actually helpful for them and it's helpful for everybody else involved because they're bearing due consequence for their evil and wrongdoing. And what's also happening is for everyone else, by them being in that pit and nobody pulling them back out of the pit and putting them back into the world, there's minimization of recurrence of the same bloodshed. Again, we may not put them in a pit. We may have to put them in a prison these days. But he's saying here, by putting them in that place and letting them suffer the just punishment for their sin, doesn't mean they can't be forgiven. But if someone can't self-regulate and they cross a line to do things that are violations that hurt and destroy individuals, to take such people and to just help them and put them back into the flow of things and not let them suffer justice, you just gave them a doorway for the recurrence of the same crimes again. And now all of a sudden, they're going to shed blood with the next person or harm or abuse the next person. And here he says, wisdom understands justice has a purpose. Sometimes it's a deterrent to keep someone who can't self-regulate from recurring again and again their crimes and bloodshed and to protect innocent people so that they don't become the next victim of someone who's hurting people. Verse 18, whoever walks blamelessly, the idea is an integrity without some degree of guilt for some wrongdoing will be saved preserved, protected, but he who's perverse in his ways, the opposite, will suddenly fall. So living with integrity, the Bible says, is great assurance to preserve my life, to keep your life safe. It is the safest way to operate, just being honest, having integrity, staying blameless, above reproach, keeping things in the light. God says living that way is wise because it protects us from ruin. It's just a self-preserving way to live. It keeps you and I from being in a place where severe, devastating outcomes can come to pass. In contrast, he says, if that's disregarded and a person foolishly begins to twist their ways and pervert their ways and do things that are wrong, again, the consequence, such a person will suddenly fall. And the picture there is to fall hard. That is, that such a person will, will bring a severe crash, an abrupt major devastation with all the shame and the suffering that goes along with that. So God says, do the former, be careful of the latter, or the outcome will be painful. Verse 19, he who tills his land will have plenty of bread, but he who follows frivolity, again, another contrast, will have poverty enough. So here the idea speaks of how the wise person knows that simply, really, tilling the land, that just speaks of routine work. 
every day, going out there, tilling the land, tilling the land, tilling the land, tilling the land, day after day, week after week, just doing routine work. The wise person knows that simply routinely working in a diligent matter consistently is what provides what is needed. If we're willing to just go out and labor and sweat it out in the field, and day by day, and week after week, and month after work, just keep tilling the land and tilling the land, then he says, you'll have adequate provision. Because that work that you do today and that work that you do tomorrow will be what ultimately reaps the harvest next week and next month. And it's what we do now that prepares what we need and provides what we need for the future. And so again, just this wisdom reminder of the value of diligence, of consistent hard work, whatever it takes, tilling the land that don't sound glamorous, right? Dirt and sweat and, 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 and just grinding it out. That's what we all got to do to make provision, to make sure that we have plenty of bread, what we need in our lives, whatever tilling the land is for us. The key is that willingness and discipline to go out and to till the land. That's the important part. We got to go out and do that part. That's our responsibility. We got to go out and do the work get out into the field, do whatever it takes to make sure that we ensure that we have plenty of bread that's going to come in when the harvest comes. And keep in mind, in that day, having plenty of bread isn't the same way we want, where on the way home, you know, your spouse can text you and say, can you pick up a loaf of bread on the way home? And all you got to do is swing through Wawa or things through a supermarket. Well, in that day, you had to plow the ground, plant the seed, harvest the wheat, grind the wheat, get some flour. I mean, to get bread was a way bigger process than just swinging by the grocery store. There was a lot of work. You had a lot of things you had to do to make sure you had plenty of bread. And so that's what God's saying. There's a lot of work to do. You just got to work consistently, whatever your field of, you know, services, just, just keep being consistent, God says. You know, whatever your field is, just keep working regularly, diligently. You got to do that part. That's our part. But he who follows frivolity, that is playfulness and having fun and leisure, in contrast, will have poverty enough. So the contrast to this, if someone becomes lazy and they overly begin to indulge too much leisure, too much pleasure, too much sitting around, and they enjoy having a good time and the frivolities of life a little bit too much, then God says the outcome of that is you're going to end up finding that you don't have what's necessary because your frivolity is not producing anything. And the lack of work doesn't create and supply anything. God says, you got to work today to supply for tomorrow, to supply for next week, to supply for next month. And if a person neglects to work now, they won't have what they need in the future, God says. So again, just a reminder of the wisdom of diligence, a vital way, folks, to stay out of economic struggles is mainly just stay occupied, routinely working and doing what you got to do. Of course, money management is a part of that, but a big part of that is you got to get money to manage. So just routinely work in the field, that's the way to stay on track and make sure you're not struggling economically. Verse 20, he then says, and a faithful man will abound with blessings, but he who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. So again, the picture there, just a faithful man being faithful in your job, being faithful in what it is that you're doing, just consistently reliably, faithfully staying at whatever you do, work in the field that God has you, in a sense, plowing in. A faithful man, God says, the reward of that is you will end up abounding with blessings. Again, God's word always speaks of how he rewards 
faithfulness. Again, faithfulness always leads to not only provision, but reward and promotion. Many blessings are the reward of just consistently doing what we do in a way that's faithful, doing what's right. And again, it may not be overnight victory. It may not be overnight success, right? You can faithfully work a field day after day, week after week, month after month, and you still may not see the harvest because there's always a gap of time between sowing and reaping, right? So you got to be faithful even when you see nothing. You got to be consistent even when there's no results. You got to keep sowing. You don't sow the seed and all of a sudden a plant pops out. It doesn't happen like that. You got to just keep being faithful, staying power, staying at it, showing up, not getting distracted, not getting discouraged, but ultimately realizing that a blessing is ultimately going to come forth as the result of faithfulness. He says, eventually you will begin to abound with blessings. Look, abounding in blessings, not just wealth alone. There are many other ways, I hope we all realize, to abound with blessings beyond just money beyond just resources alone. There are many other ways to experience blessings in our lives that are of much more value even than finances. But he says those who, in contrast, hasten to be rich, the idea is they're looking for the shortcuts, the get-rich-quick scams and schemes. That's why they promote them, because people look for them, right? Work from home, and you can make $10,000 a week if you... Whoa, I can make $10,000 a week and work from home for one and a half hours a week? Sign me up. Well, it only costs $500. I don't care if I'm going to get rich quick. And, and again, we all fall prey to that as human beings. So that's why that kind of... So he says, beware of that kind of stuff. Hastening to be rich, he says, it's not going to go unpunished. Again, there's no quick path to success. There's no quick path to maturity. There's no quick path to spiritual maturity. There's no quick path to gaining wealth. In all honesty, he says, you know, that that is just a trap of hastening after that, thinking that somehow we can take shortcuts and find quick ways to get somewhere. No, God says the right way to get there is just, just keep grinding it out. Just keep being faithful. Don't fall into that trap and suffer the error because oftentimes chasing after wealth and trying to get rich quick, that really ends up doing what 1 Timothy 6 says. You bring a bunch of regret and sorrow into your life. And you can read 1 Timothy 6. It's a great commentary on that very statement of what's described there. He who hastens to be rich will not go unpunished. Many people who have hastened to try and get rich quick, cut corners, compromised, they end up bringing a lot of sorrow and regret and pain into their lives. So be careful of that. Just keep at the right thing, and the blessings will come in due time. Verse 21, to show partiality is not good, and that's always true for any reason. We should never show partiality or favoritism to anyone. Why? Because God doesn't, right? God sees no person as more important than any other person, and God sees no other person on earth as inferior to any other person. God sees value in all of us, no matter what our status, what our age, what our socioeconomic status, what our ethnicity. God sees everybody as having equal value. God doesn't show partiality or favoritism to any person. He treats people with the same degree of equality. He expects the same from everyone. He doesn't give special exceptions. Oh, you're a group that you need special exceptions. Well, that's a victim mentality. 
That is a lie of some of this CRT nonsense and stuff that's floating around. Well, you just you you need you need a little extra help. You just you, you need a little, and we're going to lower the standard for you. No, that's nonsense. You're degrading a person. The same expectation should exist for everybody. You're a human being. We reward off a of merit. It doesn't matter what your situation is. Some of the people who've had some of the worst starts in life have become some of the most successful, incredible people. Because they understood that, hey, I'm not looking for a victim card here. I'm like everybody else. And I'm going to work hard and make good choices and right decisions. And look, if there's a country that you can experience that in, it's this country, not anywhere else on the world. And so God says, don't show partiality to people. Don't give special preference to this person because they seem important. Don't, you know, make people feel like they're a victim and show favoritism or partiality. But he says, instead... Because for a piece of bread, look, he says, a man will transgress. And see, the problem whenever we show partiality in any way with people is God describes here, there is this human weakness inside of all of us where people can be persuaded to do wrong for the simplest and smallest offers of personal gratification. Look what he says, for a piece of bread, somebody will transgress. A piece of bread. The idea is for a simple moment of gratification, if people feel entitled and they feel like that they're, he says, for the simplest things, people will just start compromising. And they'll make compromises even just for a small moment of gratification. And how sad we all know to hear stories of people who've greatly transgressed for a foolish, small form of momentary self-gratification. And the regret that that brings. So God says, don't do that to people. Don't put them in that tempting position and cause them to stumble. Verse 22, a man with an evil eye, an unhealthy eye, a polluted eye, the picture is, hastens after riches. There's the idea again of chasing after riches, being driven for wealth, chasing hard after wealth, and does not consider, look, the pathway of chasing hard after wealth doesn't consider that doing that, poverty will come upon him. Well, isn't that an interesting picture? Somebody that's consumed with greed, they start getting excited, maybe they, they see the opportunity, more money and more money, and the next thing you know, they're not just plodding along. Now they are passionately chasing after more wealth and more riches, and in the meantime, even maybe if as they're chasing it, or maybe even they obtain it, what they're doing at the same time is they end up bankrupting everything else about their life. They bankrupt their health, they bankrupt their family, they bankrupt their marriage, and and so sad to see people at times chase after riches, more riches, oh, the higher paying job, and as they're chasing more riches, they end up failing to consider it ends up causing a bankrupt life and causes them to have a very poor life existence in lots of other ways. Look, folks, nothing is worth sacrificing the wealth of uh, your health and a healthy marriage and a healthy family, no amount of money, no amount of money. And especially spiritually, that we could make ourselves impoverished spiritually. Remember, Jesus said, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and his own soul is lost or he himself is destroyed? So again, 1 Timothy 6 describes that too, how people can chase after wealth and chasing wealth can be one of the things that really causes people to become very impoverished spiritually because all of a sudden their soul starts to get neglected and that's really the most important and wealthy thing of all. 
Verse 23, he who rebukes a man will find more favor afterward than he who flatters with the tongue. So again, flattery is complimenting someone, but oftentimes flattery is complimenting people with an unhealthy reason, right, to get on their good side. Where rebuking someone is confronting their error to speak to bring awareness maybe of some wrong in their life to help correct them. And he says the wise person realizes that even though it may be difficult to rebuke a man, to challenge them for their wrong, to bring it to their attention, that you're going to end up finding more favor afterward. The idea is in a longer picture of the relationship. That somebody will much more appreciate you in the long picture if you had enough love to say faithful are the wounds of a friend. And if you rebuke or challenge them where they're wrong, he says, that's going to bring more favor afterward than if you're somebody who's more prone to, you know, I, I don't know. I just, I don't know if I want to get confrontational. And instead you just keep flattering their ego or saying nice things and you fail to call them out because you don't want to bring to their attention what they're doing wrong. He says, uh, th that really isn't a form of kindness. It ends up being something really that just damages the relationship by not speaking the truth into their life. Verse 24, whoever robs his father or his mother, now that's awful sad, isn't it? And then says, look at this, it is no transgression. I haven't done anything wrong. The same is a companion to a destroyer. Now, to rob one's mother or father is in a sense very grievous because think about it, just practically if you would, what do our fathers and our mothers do for us for a good portion of our lives. Provide for us. <laughs> so they provide for us for a huge portion of our life, and then after they provide for us so sacrificially, so kindly for decades, then we turn around and rob them. And he says to do that, to rob your mother and father, whether, again, whether it's robbing them of honor, because the Bible says we're to honor them, they're owed honor, you can rob a parent that way, or to rob them literally, to rob them of finances, literally to do something horrible or in a form of stealing or even to rob them in the sense, I think at times of what happens is people rob their parents by living foolishly and making mistakes and basically monopolizing their parents' wealth, having to bail them out of prison or pay for them to get this to because basically what they're doing is they're living foolishly and their foolish way of living is causing their parents to have to throw their money into their child's adult life to keep fixing their problems. And then the child wants to act like it's no big deal and God says, don't say that's no transgression. God says to me, I look at you and you're the same as a destroyer. You're, you're destroying your parents. That's horrible, God says. Utterly selfish. Again, we should be looking, the biblical perspective is the Bible says to repay our parents right? That, that's how it's to go. They take care of us, and then we look for ways to pay them back, and certainly never to rob them. God says that's like being a destroyer. He, verse 25, is a proud heart, stirs up strife, but he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. So again, where does strife come from? He says it always comes from someone having a what? Proud heart. So when someone's heart is proud, 
they're stubborn. The idea is they're, they're, they're selfishly pushing for their way because to be proud is to see yourself above is more important. So when a person is proud, they become selfish and self-serving. They see themselves as superior, so they always strive to have their way. And as a result, they end up causing strife in relationships. It stirs up strife, and that's where pride is always you know, the outcome of stirring up strife in relationships because you manipulate and mistreat people when you're proud. But he who trusts in the Lord will be prospered. The picture there is instead of being proud and striving to get our own way, God says wisdom recognizes, you know what? The better thing would be to trust the Lord to take care of my situation and to seek God to work in that matter and not have to be proud and strive to get my way, but just to seek the Lord to work on my behalf and let God prosper me and let God open the doors and take care of that situation and rather struggling and striving in pride, seeking God in faith and letting God prosper your cause by working supernaturally as you trust him to work instead of trying to struggle it through in the flesh. Verse 26, he who trusts his own heart is a fool. Jeremiah 17 tells us our heart is deceitful, desperately wicked, and so our heart can misguide us. So to trust our own heart is a very dangerous thing at times. But whoever walks wisely will be delivered. So instead of trusting my heart's desires, because sometimes the desires of my heart can be off, and my emotions can be driving me in wrong directions. We don't want to live by emotions and feelings alone. Instead, he says, we want to walk wisely. And how do we do that? By just living according to the truth of God's word. And walk, take wise steps according to the word of God by choices of the will and not just going by the whims of emotions because at times our desires in our heart can be wrong. Verse 27, he who gives to the poor will not lack, but he who hides his eyes will have many curses. So this reminds us some Proverbs we saw earlier where God talks about he who lends to the poor lends to the Lord, and the Lord will repay him. And the idea here is just a reminder that wise people understand how to manage money as God directs, and that is by faith and not by fear. That is, the wise person realizes everything is provided by God. He's my, my supplier all that I have, I'm just managing for him. And so therefore, I live with an open hand. And if I see a situation where I should help or I can give or I can contribute, I'm generous in that situation. And I don't worry about, oh, well, if I give to them, I won't have enough. But I realize, you know what? No, God's my supplier and God rewards generosity and giving and that type of a spirit. And he says, the person who hides their eyes, the idea is they try and act like they don't see where maybe they should help or they could give or do something, God says they don't end up benefiting. They end up just robbing themselves. And I'll tell you, I think of Proverbs 11 where he talks about how there's one who scatters and gains the more. There's one who withholds more than is right, and they don't have enough. And sometimes people don't realize as they have fear to be a giver, and so they think in their fear, well, I can't give because i make—I got to make sure I got enough. I got to make sure I got enough. And they're always trying to make sure they got enough. So they never give. They never learn how to be generous and have an open hand. And what happens is God says, okay, if you don't want to give and you don't want to learn to be generous, then at times I'll find ways to allow this to be cursed and your car to be cursed. And, 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 I, and God will do that. God says, okay, if you don't want to give it to someone else, you can give it to the auto mechanic. You could have given it in a good way, but now you got to give it to the auto mechanic because I'm not going to let you just get greedy since you don't want to give. 
And God just finds ways, right? We, we've all kind of learned that lesson a time or two. And God says, better to just learn to trust and to be a generous person. Verse 28, and when the wicked arise, men hide themselves. Much repetition back from verse 12 once again. But when they perish, the righteous increase. The idea is, is when an unhealthy, wicked leader or ruler is removed, then the righteous begin to flourish again. And how wonderful to know that God does allow people to be set up in leadership, and if need be, God is more than able to remove people from leadership to allow his righteous cause to flourish. Well, let's stand together.